This is The Mockbuster, a Vespucci story, written by Sean Revive and narrated by me, Eric Jason Martin. Several names have been changed, and small elements have been fictionalized to protect the identities of sources. Nicole was up all night with the sharks. Along with her boss, Ed Montoro, she oversaw the installation of this massive pool in the lobby of Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. Now she watches Ed stalk the lobby, stopping every few seconds to shake someone's hand. She can't help but wonder if he's mimicking the movement of the predatory beasts. It's November 18, 1981, and Film Ventures International has just launched its biggest promotion ever. It's for a thriller called Great White, and Ed Montoro, the founder and head of the studio, is going all out to get it in theaters. Caesars Palace is hosting the National Association of Theater Owners convention. These are the people who choose what movies get shown on screens across the country, and they're getting their first look at Great White today. That's why Ed imported two sharks in specially made tanks on a chartered air freighter from Florida and dropped them in the lobby of the casino. He wants these people to open their eyes. He also wants their respect. Ed normally rocks bell-bottoms and hippie-length hair, but today he's clean-cut and wearing a gray suit. Under the jacket is a red silk tie with a matching handkerchief in his breast pocket. He walks with the confidence of a gangster. To complete the look, he even carries a gun sometimes. But not today. Today, the sharks are all he needs to impress. He tells a young reporter that, as far as he knows, they're the first sharks to swim in Nevada since the place was under sea two million years ago. Nicole rolls her eyes. He's already used this line a dozen times. Tall and blonde, Nicole wouldn't look out of place on a film set, which is exactly where she wants to be, but behind the camera, not in front of it. Seven years ago, she was just out of NYU film school when Ed Montoro hired her. During the job interview in his office on San Vicente, right on the border of Beverly Hills, Ed looked her up and down and said he'd make her a director all right. But first she had to learn the ropes. She had to learn how the sausage got made in Hollywood. So, instead of directing, Nicole became an executive assistant at Film Ventures International. She makes appointments, schmoozes with talent and theater execs, and does whatever Ed needs to make the studio run. For all his faults, and there are many, Ed gave Nicole her first break in show business. He didn't need to give her a chance, but he was often generous with young upstarts like her, even if he usually ended up screwing them over. The Sharks are a hit, but Nicole can tell that Ed is disappointed. They're just eight-foot lemon sharks, not the 20-footers he hoped for. 
He's been having to settle for second-rate commodities for a long, long time. But still, all signs point to Great White as being the biggest movie in the history of Ed's little company, even if it is just a repurposed Italian film. It's about a popular East Coast beach town that's being terrorized by a great white shark. At the end, a salty skipper with an English accent and a local shark expert sail out to hunt the great white and eventually blow it up. Sound familiar? It's been six years since Jaws became the biggest box office hit of all time. It was the first summer blockbuster earning $260 million domestic and another $200 million international. The widest release in movie history. Every kid in the world afraid to go in the water. Three years later, Jaws 2 was a huge hit too, earning $180 million worldwide. Now Universal's got the big-budget Jaws 3D in the works. Everyone in the movie business knows about it, including and especially Ed Montoro, there isn't a hit movie or concept from the last ten years that he hasn't tried to ride the coattails of. He might as well call his company Knockoff Pictures. Great White is just the latest. A few years ago, Film Ventures International put out a nearly shot-for-shot -shot remake of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest called The Fifth Floor. A year before that, Ed put out The Visitor, which blended close encounters of the third kind, The Omen, and carry into a kind of rip-off gumbo. And when he can't deliver a movie that reminds audiences of other blockbusters, he'll resort to tricks to get them into theaters. He once bought a sexploitation film called The Bod Squad and renamed it Shogun Warlord to attract viewers of the sensational miniseries Shogun, even though the movie had nothing to do with Japan. He also bought a random European flick and renamed it Convoy Buddies to build on the number one hit song Convoy. When Ed Montoro isn't straight up copying movies, he's putting out slasher flicks, kung fu flicks, sexploitation, blaxploitation, any kind of exploitation you can think of. They're the beest of B-movies, but he doesn't call them that. To Ed, they're small features. The first time Nicole met him, he went into this whole spiel about how Warner Brothers didn't make A Star is Born because they wanted to produce a work of art. The execs simply saw potential in that property to make money. And it did. $60 million on a $6 million budget. When movie makers stop thinking about making bucks, there aren't going to be any movies around. And if that's exploitation, Ed said, then we're all guilty. So Ed doesn't apologize for his small features or their quality. Why should he apologize for copping a buck off Jaws? It's Jaws. It belongs to everyone just like Star Wars belongs to the billion people who saw it. Should Spielberg and Lucas be the only ones in Hollywood getting rich? For every Jaws, there should be a Great White. For every Conan the Barbarian and its $70 million box office, there should be a Blade Master. It's the age of the blockbuster, and Ed Montoro is pioneering a brand new form, the Mockbuster. 
Nicole trails him as he leaves the Caesars lobby and heads to the Film Ventures suite on the 11th floor. The place is filled with purple velvet furniture and sweaty men sucking down cigarettes. Great white promotional materials cover the tables and half the walls. Posters, leaflets, plush sharks, you name it. Nicole has already sent something like 10,000 promo packets to TV, radio, and print journalists around the country. Each of them got a shark fact sheet, an issue of a shark gazette with a 3D pop-up page, an elaborate four-color press kit, and an inflatable toy shark. Ed has shelled out for shark calendars, shark pencil holders, and shark cigarette lighters. It's Film Ventures' first nationwide ad campaign. In New York, they hired a boat to tow a gigantic shark fin around the island of Manhattan. And on the West Coast, they sponsored an actual shark hunt off Monterey Bay. Now, the teaser trailer is playing in over 2,000 theaters across the country. Everyone at Film Ventures, Nicole included, thinks it's guaranteed to be their biggest hit. Great White might even propel the company to the big time, or more accurately, propel Ed to the big time. After all, Ed is Film Ventures, and Film Ventures is Ed, even if the company has a couple dozen employees. So, if Great White is the hit they think it'll be, it could mean he's no longer picking up the crumbs of the big studios. It could mean he's really, truly made it. From a runaway Midwestern boy, to a criminal, to a Hollywood mogul. And maybe, Nicole thinks, just maybe, he'll take her with him. Maybe she can start making movies of her own. In the back of the suite, a projector shows the trailer for Great White on repeat. The voice narrating the trailer is Percy Rodriguez, the same guy who narrates the Jaws and Jaws 2 trailers. Port Harbor has been invaded by the ultimate predator. Coming right at us! A beast against which there is no defense. Nature's perfect killing machine. Great White Shark. Great White. The terror begins March 5th. Half a dozen theater owners from Albuquerque are drinking whiskey on Film Ventures' dime and watching a young windsurfer get knocked off his board by a mechanical shark. One of them shouts, Montoro, you're going to buy another Rolls Royce off this piece of junk ripoff. Ed fakes a smile and pours himself a bourbon. He sits on a velvet couch in a far corner, pushing several inflatable sharks out of the way. Beyond the window is the Vegas Strip, and 2,000 gamblers heading out to lose their shirts. Ed pats a purple ottoman in front of him, and Nicole sits down. After knocking back the bourbon, his head begins to droop. For all his salesman intensity, there's something defeated about Ed, maybe even scared. Muttering to Nicole, he goes through all the risks again. They've spent $4.5 million on the ad campaign and another million on the prints. The cost of flying in the sharks alone was over a hundred grand. Everything they've made, from Karate Killer, Kill and Kill Again, 
pickup summer, the house on Sorority Row, everything has been sunk into this picture. But Ed's problems are bigger than an ad campaign. For years now, he's been openly bragging about his affairs, which may have something to do with why he's found himself in the middle of a nasty divorce. And on top of all of that, Universal Studios is mad as hell about Great White and is threatening to sue film ventures out of existence. But in the world of blackness, beneath these waves, there are no days, no nights, no seasons, only endless existence and a being whose only thought since the beginning of time is his ravenous desire to feed. This is all common knowledge around the film venture's office. But Nicole knows things that others don't, things no one is supposed to know. One day, she picked up the phone and overheard him saying that he owes money to Korean gangsters who secretly financed one of his pictures. Maybe that's why he carries a gun. Ed stands up with a groan and looks out at the strip. Everybody loves sharks, he tells Nicole. They're scared of them, but they love them, because a shark represents ultimate jeopardy. And then... Like a mechanical shark switching back on, he heads over to the theater owners and starts working them again. Nicole sits on the ottoman another minute, watching him with a kind of reluctant admiration. Ultimate Jeopardy. She'll remember that phrase for the rest of her life. It's one of the last things Ed says to her before he disappears. After quitting time, when they'd close up the office and take a drive down Sunset Boulevard, Ed would fall into a nostalgic mood. He'd tell Nicole the story of his life, as if relating the epic biography of a Hollywood mogul like Louis B. Mayer or Cecil B. DeMille. The story always began with the crash. The best thing that ever happened to him was crashing a plane into a 40-foot tree. He'd say this with a knockoff gangster accent, chewing on one of those stir sticks that you get in a coffee shop. Before the crash, he was headed nowhere fast. But after that, he told Nicole, he lived a life of dreams. Ed was born in Cleveland, Ohio in 1936. His parents were middle-class Americans with middle American dreams. They didn't understand that their son had bigger fish to fry. Ed ran away from home when he was 15, with just 67 cents in his pocket, and got all the way to Los Angeles. He apprenticed as a lithographer at a print shop, learning how to copy original works of art onto mass-produced paper. In 1956, at the age of 20, he and a business partner started their own print shop, but it failed miserably, and they ended up steeped in debt. They got new jobs, but didn't earn enough to repay the money, and they had to flee to Salt Lake City. The jobs there paid even less, so they started a new kind of printing business, making counterfeit $20 bills. They printed the money on book paper, 32,000 bills, worth a total of 640,000 bucks. When police caught on, 
They found the two counterfeiters in a motel room, dusting the bills with chalk and coal powder to make them look weathered. Ed got four years in federal prison. He was only 21. He told a judge that he was so nervous passing around these bills that he nearly got an ulcer. When he got out of jail, he moved to Willowick, Ohio, and started a repair business called Ed's TV Service. Soon, he was married to Joanne, a young woman from rural Georgia, and had a couple of kids. But Ed quickly grew bored by his TV repair business and his all-American nuclear family. He craved adventure, so he started training to be a commercial airline pilot. He had 2,000 miles under his belt when he crashed a single-engine plane into a 40-foot tree. This was 1966, and he ended up in the hospital with his jaw wired shut for three months. His face needed to be reconstructed. He'd broken nearly every part of it in the crash. While in the hospital, unable to speak, Ed had a lot of time to think, mostly about how fragile life can be, how easily you can waste it doing monotonous work. He thought about the big-shot people he saw in Los Angeles while he worked at his failed print shop. They were making a living creating art that everyone loved. Art that scared people, or made them laugh, or made them cry. When he left the hospital, Ed vowed to be more like those big shots. He had a new face, and he vowed to do whatever he wanted for the rest of his life. And what he wanted to do was make movies. In 1968, Ed took the family's savings from the TV repair business and wrote, directed, and produced two films, mostly about sexy women taking off their clothes. The first was a quote-unquote crime movie called Platinum Pussycat. Forget about the gun! I can't forget about the gun! You won't let me! You even sleep with the damn thing! Would you rather I get killed? The next was a skin flick called Getting Into Heaven, which skipped the pretext of story and went straight to the skin. Getting into heaven is the ultimate orgasm. For wild, woolly action you can't afford to miss. For the revealing scenes you want to see. For the explicit, lustful pleasures of the adult world of Hollywood you want to know about. To show you the full beauty of young, erotic love. For the film that paints the screen red in the wildest orgy yet. You must see Getting Into Heaven. Coming soon to this theater. Ed did most of the theater bookings himself. In the process, he learned how theater exhibitors' minds worked, what kind of movies they liked, and how to sell them. Getting Into Heaven brought in more than $250,000. He used that money to buy the rights to a few European films and gave them American releases under different titles. One of them was an Italian spaghetti western, which he named Boot Hill. It did okay box office, but then, in 1970, a much bigger company released a spaghetti western named They Call Me Trinity, starring Terence Hill and Bud Spencer. It was a hit stateside, and Ed realized that Boot Hill had the exact same stars. He rebranded the movie Trinity Rides Again and put it back in theaters to exploit the success of the other film. As the real Trinity movie was released around the country, region by region, Ed's movie followed a few weeks later. 
The one-time money counterfeiter had discovered that counterfeit movies were just as lucrative. And as a bonus, they were legal. No more ulcers. By the time Trinity had written, Ed had a million dollars to work with and a new company that he called Film Ventures International. He moved into the office on San Vicente, right on the border of Beverly Hills, and used part of the Trinity receipts to buy the rights to an Italian exorcist clone that he renamed Beyond the Door. Where demonic possession lives and evil penetrates the soul. Step inside, if you dare. Beyond the Door was released in 74 and made $5 million at the box office. That caught the attention of the major players, Warner Brothers, the producers of The Exorcist, sued Film Ventures and tried to get Ed's mockbuster out of theaters. Fighting that lawsuit was one of Nicole's first jobs. She hired researchers to study exorcism documents from the 14th century. They found evidence of levitation and vomiting, real events that inspired the scenes in The Exorcist. That proved to the judge that Warner Brothers had no rights to the scenes in their movie in the first place. They were historical events. They belonged to everyone. Film Ventures won the lawsuit, Ed got to keep his profits, and Nicole looked like a genius. Now Ed had the money to produce more of his own movies, instead of just buying films made by others. He started with a real throat-grabber of a horror flick called Grizzly, the movie followed an 11-foot grizzly bear that stalks hikers at a national park. It was a clear ripoff of Jaws in bear form. Spielberg's movie had only been released a year earlier, and audiences were hungry for more savage animal attacks. You will see nature's most savage man-eating animal. By its size alone, it can overpower and devour any human. Grizzly. <laughs> Grizzly scared up $15 million for Film Ventures, a massive hit, becoming the top-grossing independent film of the year. Suddenly, Ed Montoro was being compared to Roger Corman, the legendary independent producer who started his career with about the same amount of savings. But Ed wasn't great at sharing his success. The director of Grizzly, along with another producer, had to sue him for unpaid cuts of the profit. This was already becoming a common problem at film ventures. It didn't exactly endear Ed to his creditors when he bought two Rolls-Royce Silver Shadows and a 42-foot boat he called Kick in the Aft. Meanwhile, the hits kept coming. Over the next few years, Film Ventures put out another animal attack film, Day of the Animals, the horror movie Shock, an action flick called Karate Killer, and a science fiction film called The Dark, sold to exploit the success of Alien. But the biggest investment by far came in the form of a giant mechanical shark, the star of Great White. On those late-night drives down Sunset, Nicole could feel that the whole story of Ed's life was curving toward this one last shot at the big time. In 
It's 9.15 a.m. on February 17th, 1984, and Nicole walks into the Film Ventures office a little late, sipping a cup of coffee. On her way to Ed's office, she hears barely disguised whispering, then shouting. A marketing exec screams, That asshole motherfucker! She heads for the boardroom. All the employees of Film Ventures are sitting at the large mahogany table, looking baffled and grim. It's been a few years since the big promotional splash at Caesar's Palace. A few years since things started going wrong. Not long after Great White hit the screen, a California judge found that Film Ventures had infringed upon the copyright of Universal Studios, the owners of Jaws. The judge said that Ed had clearly ripped off the story of what he called a terror fish attacking a coastal town on the Atlantic seaboard. Worse still for Ed, the judge ordered Film Ventures to collect and deliver all prints and negatives of Great White to the court. Great White's run in theaters was over soon after it began. Instead of being Ed's greatest hit, it was closer to his biggest disaster. Around the time of the Great White fiasco, Ed got sick and was hospitalized. Hospitals had always been a place of metamorphosis for Ed. Just like when he crashed his plane and vowed to be a filmmaker, something happened while he was sick something Nicole would never fully understand. Before the illness, he liked to be barefoot and in bell-bottoms, a hippie at first glance. But when he appeared back at the office, he'd cut his hair and replaced his jeans with suits and ties. He started eating healthy and lost eight pounds. The changes didn't end there. Nicole noticed that Ed was taking secret flights back and forth from Switzerland, the world's home of private bank accounts, without telling anyone where he was going. She heard him practicing Spanish behind the closed doors of his office. Mi nombre es Ed. Mi nombre es Ed. The chants seemed to go on for hours. So, when she walks into the boardroom in 1984... She's far less shocked than the rest of the staff. The four vice presidents working under Ed tell everyone to sit down. There's a black briefcase in front of a VP named Michael. He opens it and turns it around to show everyone. It's filled with cash. Ed is gone, he announces. He left town, fled the country, most likely, and none of us know if he's coming back. What you see in this briefcase is your final payment. Michael proceeds to explain that Ed has taken a million dollars from the company and bolted. To help cheer everyone up, Michael also gives them each a dartboard with a picture of Ed in the middle. Everybody gets the chance to aim a sharp point at the once broken face of their boss. The guy who gave them all a Hollywood shot and then snatched it away. Over the next few months, Nicole hears rumors that Ed went to Georgia or was spotted fishing in South America. She hears that he died in an earthquake in Mexico City or from that mysterious illness that put him in the hospital. 
Some say he fled the costs of his divorce. Others that those Korean gangsters finally caught up with him. But none of the stories seem right to Nicole. Ed left both Rolls Royces, the house, and the kick-in-the-aft boat. Money problems are one thing, she thinks. But Ed was fleeing something deeper. Film Ventures survives a few more years under the four VPs, but eventually it's sold and folds into a bigger company. That's when Nicole decides to strike out on her own. Leveraging her experience under Ed, she starts producing movies. Her dream of directing never comes to fruition, but that's another thing she learned from him, that it's okay to come close to the genuine article, but not quite the real deal. In time, she earns enough to buy a house in Tennessee with a view of a lake. No one ever hears from Ed Montoro again. Gradually, the rumors about his whereabouts stop circulating, and when he's remembered at all, it's as one of the great unsolved mysteries of independent cinema. In the thick of her career, even Nicole stops thinking about her old boss. But every now and then, something reminds her of him. The connection isn't always clear, but for a moment it feels like the mystery is about to reveal itself, like she's about to get to the bottom of Ed Montoro, once and for all. Like during the spring, when a few geese always take up residence in her backyard, on the edge of the lake. Nicole can sit there for hours, watching them waddle about and flap their wings and hawk. And then one day she wakes up, and they're gone, just like that. They're free. You've been listening to Paperless, an audio magazine by Vespucci.